A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Listening to Cocoons of Horror, a podcast that revisits classic horror and other pulp fiction. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we jump into the modern fantasy genre. I think that's what this is. The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. A very interesting career choice by the funniest man of the 1980s. It's an odd movie. It's got a lot of problems. But Steve is weirdly sentimental about this movie, even though I don't think he likes it very much. All right, let's jump right into it with my co-host, Comic Steve Osborne. All right, Steve, I'm curious about your general relationship with Eddie Murphy. Oh, it's funny that because I because I started to look after after this film, I was like, okay, well, where did I wanted to kind of get a sense of where this film was in his timeline, and I was. It's funny how time works when you're younger because I remember Eddie Murphy's peak right well like you know the ascent uh mm-hmm. was snl and then, and then which i was never privy to that was before my snl watching days gotcha gotcha so yeah so i watched i was i was a very early adopter of snl um as i'm sure you know and so i i i think you know like i could even speak to a little bit of the anthony michael hall robert downey jr season mm. that was was a bit of a of a trudge, the much but, maligned uh, season <laughs> Yes, and uh, but yeah, I remember Eddie Murphy just blowing up, right? And I I had his uh, cassette, Eddie Murphy comedian, um, would wear that out. Um, so a big Delirious fan. First rated R movie I ever saw in the theater was Beverly Hills Cop. Okay, so you were an Eddie Murphy fan, an early. Sure, adopter. I mean, I had seen I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop two alone in the theater probably like three or four times, and I remember Golden Child coming out and. Not knowing what to do with it then. <laughs> my first, uh, I guess my introduction to Eddie Murphy was on a cassette tape in a friend's bedroom of Delirious. Mm. And, like, I, I mean, I just remember crying. I was laughing so hard at Delirious. And I don't know if you've watched Delirious uh lately when's the last time you actually watched um probably a couple years ago i would say about 20 percent of it holds up you know which is which is actually is quite decent for the shelf life of comedy is usually in decades right right and especially 
that one, right? I mean, there's, I don't know, and and, and this may sound um, less woke than than. Uh, I think I think people know. Yeah. Okay. They, at this point, I think they know what I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you see, like, you can look at stuff and go, ah, man, that would not. You couldn't get away with that today. Well, he wasn't getting. Let away. me just clarify for a moment. All right. So. Steve is very woke, but those are the parts of himself that he hates the most. Thank you. That's a great way to put it. That is All right, so continue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, you even so, so the material that today would be, you know, you couldn't get away with, right? Um, it's interesting to look at it from almost like an academic perspective, right? Because it does, you get a good glimpse of what the time was like, and you go, wow, this was not considered a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it, so that. Well, I always think of this I, as an adult. I think of this as this is exactly what I would expect from someone who's 19 years old. Right. And I think that that's a real key thing about And that's why I think Eddie Murphy is such a fascinating study is that it's real easy to to forget that um, he's on SNL as he's a he's just barely an adult. And yeah, that's right. And I and. Think of yourself at 20. Think of your, your children when they're 20. I mean, I know I, I mean, you don't have that problem yet, but, and think, what if superstardom was thrust upon them? What if at 20 years old, you are having a, a concert film, like a film, sure. they're making a film. You have people go to the theater <laughs> to watch you do stand up as a movie. And, and you're so popular that people are going to laugh even if something – I mean, there is a level of popularity that you can get in stand-up where you're going to find people to laugh almost no matter what you say. But what's interesting is that – so he, here's Eddie Murphy, 19, 20 years old, doing pretty low-hanging fruit stuff, doing impressions. Hey, what if Mr. T was gay? And if you were like us, like what we were like, probably like 13, 14 years old or when we first got access to this, I mean, that's – that's a home run. Are you kidding me? That is an absolute home run. Well, yeah, yeah, low, yeah, exactly. So low hanging fruit is exactly the kind of fruit that a ten year old right. boy can reach. And keep in mind, right. in the time in in the early eighties, there's like almost no sense of like, well, you you shouldn't have said that. Um, if anything, our parents just didn't want us to listen to it because of the language. The, it, yeah, it was the language. So Golden Child. So Goldschild's his first PG-13 film. So this one okay. becomes his more accessible and a genre that he's not been a part of. Well, what genre would you say that this is? I'd say it's fantasy. Okay. Because it's more, much more magic than there is action. And much more magic than there is humor, even though I think they tried. Well, I feel like he plays this whole thing as a joke. Like, that's kind of his demeanor throughout the entire film is that this is all kind of amusing right. to him. Like, even when he's about to die, it's a little bit amusing to him. And he really kind of comes off as this action hero who's so above it that, you know, he's 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 never really menaced so much that he couldn't make a joke about it. Right. Which is interesting because he's menaced by some pretty weird things. <laughs> You know, like a giant demon. <laughs> a giant demon. A giant claymation demon is enough to sort of put me in a in a state of maybe not as much sarcasm and one liners. 
Um, I was thinking a uh, uh, elevator pitch with this would be Eddie Murphy is both stupider and smarter than everyone else. <laughs> That's I, my elevator pitch would have been like, what if we made an entire movie out of deleted scenes? <laughs> I was, I don't know what, I don't know where this movie went wrong. Do you think, do you think it was just, (laughs) just everything from the beginning to the end? Because I feel like there are absolutely elements in this movie that could work. Well, my understanding is I did a little, little background on this. I think it was written, it was written to be more, uh, more of a straight up like fantasy action thriller. Uh-huh. I think the the writer had like Mel Gibson in mind. Right. Was, I was thinking specifically like this is this film didn't have to be Eddie Murphy, and I doubt that they wrote it for Eddie Murphy. Right. And I forget how it came to this. So they were they tried to get several directors, one of which being John Carpenter, but he was doing Big Trouble instead. Um, I know they went through a few different actors, and then they decided to make it an Eddie Murphy vehicle. So then it just changes, right? So like with Beverly Hills if Cop, this was let me just say, if this was John Carpenter, it would be a home run. Oh, I think so too. Um, the so with Beverly Hills Cop, you have something you've not quite the same story, but it, but Beverly Hills Cop was always supposed to be an action vehicle, and it was, I think Stallone specifically was was attached to it for a long time. Mm-hmm. In fact, he took the script, because he, he wanted, the a lot of research actually, and he said he wanted it, the character to be Axel Cobretti, that eventually becomes the movie Cobra, as he, he leaves and makes Cobra. Um, and I think the <laughs> final scene was supposed to be like this crazy game of chicken with like a train or something, I don't know, it was crazy. But... Um, uh, when it eventually makes its way to Eddie Murphy, like they do kind of a rewrite, they do a whole different take on it, and then Eddie Murphy gets a chance. Well, not only that, but Eddie Murphy ad-libs a lot of... Yeah, exactly, right? So, so, And then that changes everything, right? Because it is played a lot like a straight-up action film in many ways, and, and there's, a, there's a, a real plot that goes through, you know, trying to solve a crime. And, um, and so that, that juxtaposition of Eddie Murphy... Uh, wisecracking, it it still works because the beauty of it is it's the fish out of water type thing, right? You've got you've got a down and out type uh, Detroit cop in in uptight Beverly Hills. Everybody's playing by the book, so so just by that juxtaposition, you can get away with humor mm-hmm. on it because he's looking. You talked about smarter than, dumber than, similar kind of approach in the sense that look, I don't know all your rules and everything, but here's what I do know. I know how to solve crimes. I know how to get things done. And this is how we do it in Detroit. I don't know how you do it in Beverly Hills. So his ignorance of how they do it in Beverly Hills is actually an advantage. Um, and Beverly and Hills so, Cop is, what, two years before this film? I believe so, yeah. So it's, uh, and so so then his wisecracking, his all that, it, it actually doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel like there's a comedy in an action movie. It actually feels like here's a guy who's like, the reason why he's so irreverent is because he he does think that he's better than all of this, and he thinks this mm-hmm. whole culture is is up its own ass, right? So that works. So then you do it this way, and Golden Child almost tries to replicate that somewhat because what it is is I'm a real life, real world, um, whether it's a detective, whatever his role is, uh, but now I'm going to have to go into this supernatural world. Yeah. So now now it's so it's sort of that concept, right? So it becomes like 
I don't know. Well, um, and now you're not making fun of these idiots in Hollywood. You're taking this old school Orientalism approach, right. which just certainly doesn't age very well. But every now and again, Eddie Murphy's sort of like the novice who has to learn something, you know, learn some wisdom. Yeah, he goes from Beverly Hills Cop to Mount Everest Cop. Sure. Yeah. And so, but but whenever he's doing his normal Eddie Murphy shtick, it really plays as sort of a punching down instead of punching up. Exactly. And I think that that's a really great way to put it because it does feel like, and it doesn't, and it doesn't, not only does it feel like that, but it doesn't uh, shift that tone. Like he doesn't become, it doesn't feel like he learns, ah, no, there's way more to this than that. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, like there's no, if it flipped around and like he comes to realization, instead he comes to realization like, oh yeah, there's magic, but that kind of sucks. So what is his job? You Like you alluded to this, like, okay, his job is that he finds lost children, right? Right. I assume, he, I assume he's like a PI. He's an LA PI who is prophesied to save the world. And uh, so he's tracked down. By a very attractive Asian woman, and I think she's from Tibet. Speaking of like, you know, we're talking about like the the sexuality is a punchline in the eighties. Um, so is basically any other race, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. China is Asia, as Korea is Asia. I mean, it's all Asia, and so it's all like there is a definite lumping in of everything together. So that becomes I, the story becomes less concerned about any specific. Um, Mm-hmm. you know, mythology and just sort of create sort of a blanket. This should cover sure, everything. Sure. <laughs> uh, I do want to talk, however, about this biker gang and the, the biker gang house. Right. <laughs> so um, this was a very sort of 80s biker gang. Yeah, they're they're trafficking children, but they sure they're like trafficking children. But they sure like but MTV. Not, they they're trafficking children. However, uh, at one point, the guy says that he traded the girl for a pack of cigarettes mm-hmm. and some pork fried rice. Yeah. How much? I don't understand. I don't. I... And keep and keep in mind, this is eighty six. I mean, cigarettes aren't that expensive compared to now, and and pork fried rice is very easy to get. Is the <laughs> is the movie trying to tell me that? That's how little they care about. They're nihilists. They're like, <laughs> this, 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 now you, now the way you're painting the pictures, these, this is the most nefarious biker gang ever. I will kidnap your children for lunch. <laughs> Maybe I, I'm just trying to understand, like, like that's how, that's how little they care about the order of things. They're, they're trying to tear, they're like the Joker. They're trying to tear down. <laughs> The nuclear family, but they don't care about what they get for it. Yeah, they do just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, you're now. Now that we're saying this out loud, this may be the most powerful moment in the film is the introduction of of the scariest biker gang ever. <laughs> Did you see who was on the television? Uh, it was Rat, wasn't it? Rat. It was. It was Rat. Yeah. And I thought that's a very that's a very specific choice. Right. Well, that's probably who was in the soundtrack. <laughs> So maybe that's that who they can afford. Um, if you're if you were looking for some sort of deeper meta meaning, and that's you know because uh, you know Tywin Lannister 
turns into a rat at one point. I think that was purely yeah, accidental. There's no, that. I don't think that this, I don't, I, I wouldn't do an Easter egg search into this movie like we might do Stranger Things episodes. I was episodes. waiting for the third thing to happen because, like, all right, now, let's see here. Charles Dance turns into a rat. <laughs> and they had a rat on the television. There's got to be a rat theme. You know, I'm, I've well, trained my mind to look for the, you know, message about sort of, you know, being faithful. I was I was waiting for the rat from the end of the uh, the departed, uh, the, the departed <laughs> yeah. to, to come through. Yeah, well, that, Scorsese does. I don't know if you've seen the uh, behind the scenes of the departed. I mean, he credits this film and the director Michael Ritchie a lot for for inspiring him to make the departed. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah, um, he he put it. I mean, he's like he's been pushing for this to be in the Criterion Collection, but I don't think. Um, I don't, I don't think they. they... So Scorsese's a big fan of this. Oh, movie, huge yeah. fan, huge fan. Uh, in fact, he is known. I mean, if you ever get a chance to look, look at look up Scorsese in 1986, and he, and he Google images, and he's also trying to make Eddie Murphy's hat from the Golden Child work. <laughs> is that a, a leather <laughs> fez? <laughs> this hat is like a skull cap, but it kind of mushrooms a little bit mm-hmm. on the top. And I feel like, in the same way that you know McConaughey's Reign of Fire image. <laughs> From the trailer is burned into my mind. When I think about the Golden Child, I think about that hat first and foremost. Oh, the hat's a perfect metaphor for the film, right? Like, like they put that hat out there, thinking that that hat would like something would like this will catch on. People will people will buy this hat. Let's make the hat part of this. And the, the, everyone looked at the hat and the film the same way. I'm like, nah, we're not we're not we're not buying it. So I don't think I've seen this movie all the way through before last night. I do think I watched at least the first half an hour of this because if you were going to say what's the Golden Child about, I would say Eddie Murphy wears a hat <laughs> and he eats bloody oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, see, my big take, my big takeaways. <laughs> Those are the two things that I absolutely remember about this movie. My two big takeaways from Golden Child when I had seen it were uh, uh, I, I reference it all the time, by the way. Uh, any oh, really? time I have a glass of anything that's kind of full and I have to walk any distance, <laughs> I always make a Golden Child reference. Um, Which is? Well, just that I refer to that sequence where he's where he's having to, you know, he has to get the, the dagger and he has to get the knife and, and uh, you know, I, if I make it to the table. Are you referring to Ajante's dagger? Yeah, so by the time I get to like wherever I needed to go, I, I mean, I, I conflate the scenes, but I, I get there and I go, I, 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 I got the knife. Like That's my way of saying I made it all the way over here without spilling any water. <laughs> the other thing that I took away from it was the term butt cake. Interesting. That's where you got butt cake. That's right. Fascinating. Yeah, this is that's the origin story for my high school uh, uh the thing that got me in trouble on on stage, we're making reference to butt cake. Okay, so just to fill people in, uh, we had done a, a sketch on uh, on stage as, and it was like the top ten worst things to find in your stocking, and number one was butt cake, and uh, and the whole joke was like nobody knew what it was, nobody knew what it meant, and uh, while we were talking about this on stage, you know, you know, again, we're talking high school. So people mm-hmm. are just like, that's the closest thing you're going to get to like a bad swear on stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone's eating it up, you know, uh, metaphorically. And um, and during that, while we're on stage doing it, we were, the rest of our uh, team, our performers were getting notified that we were 
going to get banned for, you know, forever from being on stage because of the obscenities mm-hmm. that I was doing. So then coming back from uh, winter break, uh, we had to go and face the wrath of, of the vice principal, Mr. Webb, because uh, he was desperate to find out what butt cake really is. And he called so me. He, so he was interrogating you about yeah. butt cake. We went on break and we're like, you know, Mr. Webb's just going to be spending the whole time stewing trying to figure out what butt cake is and, and why. Because he feels like it's code, right? It's got code for something. And, uh, and so he calls John and I into the office separately. And he proposes two different uh, theories for what butt, butt cake is. He gave John one. He gave me another. And uh, I remember trying as hard as I could to respect his authority. But I laughed so hard in his office. I was like, I was like scream crying, laughing so hard that he waited all Christmas break to use the term hiney and then fecal matter to my face. I mean, I'm like 15 years old. I mean, this was like the greatest moment in like, you know, vice principal student history. I <laughs> laughing and laughing and laughing. And I'm like, good God. I'm like, Never in a million years would I have thought that. I'm like, it's a golden child reference. <laughs> I had no idea. I I probably should have caught at that because you know, you know, butt cake is sort of synonymous with high school Steve Osborne. Yeah, so that's a funny thing. I mean, like, it's just this innocuous reference uh, to the golden child, um, and uh, and he did for what it's worth. You know, he he's he did. He said, "Well, judging by your reaction." <laughs> Clearly, this is maybe not as big a deal as I thought it was. So he put us on probation, <laughs> so we could perform. But we were we were a, a butt cake away, and he'll never say butt cake again. Mm. So <laughs> I want to talk about this talk show that. Uh, <laughs> Eddie Mur- First of all, <laughs> yeah. why is Eddie Murphy on this talk show? Right. Yeah, I don't. That one. <laughs> this I just- talk show seems to be like a I don't know, like a local TV thing. <laughs> And he's having varieties of guests on Eddie Murphy as a private detective being one of them. I, I don't understand who this is for. Yeah, and so this become this is obviously like he mentions like it's it's very early in his talk show. Uh, yeah, he's only career. had what like two episodes. Yeah, yeah. So so it's a little bit of everything, right? And I think that that was pretty pretty common. Like with the Phil Donahue, there were the Phil Donahue um, clones that were coming out, right? We were seeing that a lot with. You know, even Oprah at the time was a little more tabloidish, and and you got like Geraldo and all those things were starting to to come into effect. So Morton Downey, Morton Downey Jr. Jr. So so you would see like you would have like a legitimate guest, and then you would have like the sensational guest, like it, it kind of covered that that range. Like the the so called legitimate guests would also would legitimize your show. Like hey, we covered a serious topic, yeah. um, <laughs> and that I mean that I, it did get me the when he's. He leaves, and then he goes, just goes over to the end and says, so you had a sex change? The guy goes, correct. <laughs> that's it. And that's where it cuts. Just, no no commercial in between. Yeah. Just, <laughs> And then it just cuts right after correct. I like, I like that because it was like, obviously could, I mean, obviously the punchline is, oh, sex change, that's wild in the 80s. But the way that it responded was just correct. Like, <laughs> I don't know why that tickled me, because it was just like, all right, on to the next thing. All right, so it really does, okay, this is kind of a goofy beginning to this movie, because... Eddie Murphy is so serious in this, probably the first five minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. He's so serious. He's kind of no nonsense. He doesn't have any time for anyone who's not going to help him find this girl. 
But then for the rest of the movie, everything's a joke. Right. And he plays the entire rest of the movie as if he's kind of above it and everything is kind of joke worthy. Right. It feels like maybe the the beginning of this movie is the movie that was originally made. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking that's the part that someone else could have played, but they couldn't hold Eddie Murphy back from being Eddie Murphy. Well, then it becomes, well, why do we have Eddie Murphy, right? Like, if you don't do that, then, you know, I mean, Eddie Murphy's not at the stage in his career, I doubt, where he's like, well, I want to I play off type and do a serious fantasy role. Where, you know I mean? Like, just that wouldn't, that, that career trajectory makes would make no sense. So he gets an opportunity. I'm sure the payday was good. He gets to do a PG-13 movie, so now it's going to be even more accessible. So the thought being this is going to make a lot more money because it's not rated R. Um, it's a fantasy genre, so that's going to bring in a whole different set of eyes um, than maybe you're... And you've, then you've got the Eddie Murphy bump, which is obviously going to be worth something. So so, but, so, but to not have Eddie Murphy do his thing, it makes no sense. So the question is, does Eddie Murphy really do his thing? Because this feels... It, it feels like they let him improvise stuff and didn't know when to, to edit it. Like, there, there's a, the whole sequence where he's talking about the scroll looking mm-hmm. like a joint. He probably goes to, like, four or five jokes about it, and you probably would have settled on one to two. But I don't think that they knew what to do, right? They're right. like, just let him run. This is, you know, the, the more we let Eddie Murphy do his thing, the better. And and they didn't at know the how end to edit of the, that At the end of the movie, I, the, the thing that I came away with was this movie could have been fixed in editing. Mm-hmm. There's so many scenes that are either cut just a beat too early or a beat too late. Yeah. Like the climax of the whole movie is him killing this demon, right? Right. He kills the demon and like he doesn't break a sweat. Like literally, you know, two seconds later he's high fiving the kid. They didn't know how to Right. <laughs> they didn't know how to cut the scene yeah. to make it feel dramatic at all. There was never a dramatic moment, I think. Which is, sure. I mean, there was not one. And that's what really there got was, There was never a moment where you thought, uh, oh, no, I like this guy and he's about to die. I mean, there are moments when he looks like he could die. Maybe. But the whole, the, they never use music to that effect. This movie does not use any amount of emotionality. It's just all one note throughout. Okay. We have to talk about it because you brought it up. The music. <laughs> The music is probably the biggest problem in this film, right out the jump. And I did read a little something about. You didn't like it? Well, oh, well, that's no, no, a surprise. Well, well, let's <laughs> let's not go that far. Uh, I thought the music slapped, but not for this film. Um, the uh, the I did again some of the the research I, I read. It talked about how the, the score was a, a bit of. Um, an issue, and I think that they went with this synth sound, and it really undercuts. I agree that it's absolutely an issue. <laughs> the synth, the synth, and guitar approach, and everything really undercuts any um, any drama, any seriousness. I mean, right out the gate, mm-hmm. the you know, Tywin Lannister's coming for the kid, and um, and it's just. <laughs> it, it would not. It just. It's. Silly. It's it's and it it's remains so an silly. issue. Thirty years later, it remains an issue. <laughs> yeah, and and it and it take and every action sequence, every scene of drama has that that type of score, and it just doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's so incongruous. 
and it becomes it becomes a bigger star. So like the the saxophone in all the Lethal Weapons, which again I think if you really were to map it out, the sax has more speaking lines than even Mel Gibson. <laughs> um, now let me just I know that George Lucas is a big fan of cocoons of horror. Mm-hmm. All right, so let me just put out a little note to to George Lucas. I know you're chilling. I know you're not into this stuff anymore, but I'm telling you, if we could just do a remake of this film, just throw in a bit more CGI, bring in someone to redo the score, I think that this is a really great movie. I think if you could just edit it. I I think that this movie is ripe for a remake. I think the ingredients are actually there for a, a, a what could be a fun and interesting movie. Um, but sometimes when I go to comedy shows and I watch somebody bomb with a, a reasonable premise, I think I could mm-hmm. take that premise and I could make it a worthy joke. But then I go, but do I have to? <laughs> like, I can fix that. But uh-huh. do I have to? And that's uh-huh. may have been where I landed on this. I'm like, I could, you could probably, this could be fixed. But then I'm like, but is it that good, or is it one of those things where because it existed, you're looking at what it could be, what could be done to make it better? And that might be why there's no remake. It's it's weird. It's not often that I'll think that. It's not often that I'll be like, well, this is, this is actually a decent movie if they could just learn how to cut it a little bit, mm-hmm. or you know, you throw throw a different score in the background, or just. I, I don't know, because I, I do feel like you could make this a full-on comedy. Do you think this movie you... would have been better as a full-on comedy or as more serious fantasy? I think it could I, I think it could have been better as a full-on comedy. Yeah, because I don't think there's a lot of fantasy comedies like that, right? So I think th- that it becomes a promise of something that doesn't deliver. There's that one scene where he jumps over the fence mm-hmm. and he's got the gun. Right. And he takes the chips, and then he orders the guy to, fl- to flip, to the, flip burgers. the flip the flip the burgers because they're burning. Yeah, yeah. That to me felt like that's what this movie should be, right? And that's probably him ad libbing, you know? Yeah, because it's totally it, it, it's it's super funny. It's totally Eddie Murphy that that era of Eddie Murphy anyway. Um, and for some reason that scene works in a way that the rest of these scenes don't. It just made me think this is this is totally an ad lib. Yeah, and I think what you have, I think the the humor should have been in the uh, the Eddie Murphy character's irreverence towards towards the supernatural, and it ends up coming off like you said, like it feels like you're it, like an attempt to punch down uh, at a cultural uh, difference. Yeah, well, that's right, and and there are a couple overt examples of. Jokes that just don't work for that very reason. But I do like the fish out of water thing. Like I said, if it was John Carpenter, I would have been played very differently, I feel like. I mean, John Carpenter would be one of those guys. I mean, I'm just thinking Big Trouble in Little China. We could have a very similar conversation. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when I look back in Big Trouble in Little China, I think comedy. What do you think? Oh, I think comedy. I think, I think, but I also think the action works. Right, I mean, but it here the th- here's the thing I think that makes Big Trouble in Little China um, better in a couple of ways. Right, so the one I think I 
while I do believe that there are some broad brush strokes uh, over, uh, you know, probably you know, especially when it comes to like mysticism and Asian culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. There still feels like there's a, a reverence towards it. Like it's it's trying anyway. And I think the other thing it does is it feels like it knows what it is. Uh, Kurt Russell the whole That's time right. as Jack Burton. I mean, it's so it's so tongue in cheek. It's so uh, you know John Wayne ish. It's it, it's it it doesn't feel like it takes itself too seriously, but it doesn't play it up too campy that it becomes you know convoluted as to what it what it really is trying to do. I think that that's the big difference. I feel like this movie doesn't feel self aware mm-hmm. in the way that John Carpenter's films do. Right. Yeah, I think that's so. I think that's a key component and. It, it it's not even really a matter of does it hold up. It's it, I don't I don't I didn't like it when I saw it when I first saw it. I wanted to because it, it you know you're at an age I think it was like ten years old or whatever. I'm why why shouldn't I like a fantasy movie? Well, with Eddie Murphy? yeah, and at that st- at that point, was there anyone on the planet who was funnier than Eddie Murphy? Right. Yeah, he was the funniest man on the planet. So of course this this film is going to work, right? Yeah, and it fe- and so it would it's feel a little weird bit disappointing, it, and you would feel weird to, to say it didn't. But you know, even at ten years old, I had to come to the terms. I'm like, this just doesn't, this just doesn't work. I mean, the funny okay, parts I aren't that to... funny. Uh, the fantasy <laughs> parts aren't that aren't that fantastic, and yeah, and the action certainly wasn't very riveting. No, I want to talk a little bit about Charles Dance. Yeah, as you know, I'm the biggest Tywin Lannister fan. Uh, I've even said things like he may be the best villain in television history. I- I've said things. Mm-hmm. I've said things, Dean. He really could be the perfect counterweight to Eddie Murphy if this film was done correctly. I don't feel like this movie suffers because of Charles Dance. No. Um, I think You think Charles Dance I, I, suffers because of the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that for sure. But I think... Look, if you're going to do someone opposite Eddie Murphy who never takes anything seriously, you need someone like Tywin Lannister on the other side to make Eddie Murphy's irreverence work, right? Mm-hmm. So why not Charles Dance? I think I, I think that they really missed an opportunity here. I think that this could have – if this movie had been done well, I think he has a much different career. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the, the sequence in the uh, – was it is it the airport? Yeah. Like that give me more of that, you know? I mean that felt like then we're seeing that that was that was Beverly Hills cop kinda Eddie Murphy, right? Now he's playing a yeah, yeah he, he's right. he's totally challenging the in this case the villain, the villainous authority. Um Numsy. You know, I love all that. Um <laughs> and so that scene, like it it is interesting how I kind of drifted back into the movie during like throughout everything just feels so disjointed. But then that scene, I'm like, this is, yeah, this is your movie. This is what you're trying to do. You know, more, you know, we need to see more Charles Dance. And the other thing is we in, we get introduced to Charles Dance with a very severe synth score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we, it's hard to buy him menacing because you don't know what you're watching. Like, honestly, I think that's how it starts off. It's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be watching. Am I supposed to be scared or is this is this kind of a, a raucous rompy kind of fun thing that's going to happen because mm-hmm. because the his henchmen or like one of them is just dumb 
So it's it's odd because they're not terrifying. This group is not terrifying. He is or can be, but it doesn't make sense the company that he's keeping, right? There's a frogman. So yeah, that's that yeah, that's true. And then I do want to talk about the airport scene though. Okay, so Eddie Murphy decides that he's gonna get himself arrested. And that's going to make sure that the knife is put in, you know, the evidence room at the police station, mm-hmm. which is going to keep it away from uh who's what's Charles Dance's name? Sardo Numspa, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Sardo. So it's gonna keep it's gonna keep it <laughs> it's gonna keep the knife away from Sardo, right? I'm thinking like Dude, you're super powerful. Just take, just break into the police station or, and get the knife. Or maybe just turn into a rat and just walk in. Get it. Yeah. And then rat yourself out of or there. Or maybe just, you know, be a demon again. That seems like you could do a bunch. Seems like taking the form of a demon is going to probably be your most powerful move. Because the other part of that is, is like, I mean, why are you hiding? <laughs> you're a demon and your intent is to kill the kids. Just go, bro. Let's go. <laughs> just, just go. Like, there's no explanation. Like, oh, well, you can only turn into a demon sometimes, or you get one shot at this. It's like, no, it's just that's what you I mean. Here's an interesting. Uh, well, I well, this is Charles Dance uh, reflecting on um, the Golden Child. Oh, can't wait. So I thought I'd quite like to do a film with Eddie Murphy because he makes me laugh. The character was villainous, but he was a comic villain as far as I was concerned, and I hadn't done a film like that before. I don't think as an actor you should back off from any experience, so I thought, okay, we'll try this. And I did it, and I know that it's played over and over again, and a lot of devotees that <laughs> of that kind of thing say it's their favorite film. It was fun. I enjoyed doing it. <laughs> I like I like I like that. No regrets, right? I mean, even though Eddie Murphy said it was like the worst movie he ever made. Oh, I don't know about that. I think that was faint praise. It was a very British way to say this movie sucked, and I know it sucked. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like every every one of his uh, his films has been been terrific, right? I mean, Alien Three is not great. Last Action Hero is not great. Steve, was there one tweak to this movie that you'd make that you'd make <laughs> to to improve this movie? Honestly, I mean, the one tweak I would do just to see. Uh, I would I would try a different soundtrack. I don't think that's going to make up for a lot of the disjointedness or the, as you say, like the edits that seem a little too early or too late. But I do think, I do think a, the movie does feel instantly better with a better score. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I think you automatically gain something um, if that first scene is played a little bit more dramatically with the music, then maybe, maybe you're sufficiently intrigued. But if you're already going, what am I watching? Like uh, right out the gate, <laughs> that seems like a problem. So I think that that would, I think that if I'm only going to make one tweak, yeah. Um, and, and shutting the production down is not one of my options. Um, I think, <laughs> I think you do. I would I would try the soundtrack. Um, I mean, I, you could also say a different director, right? Because I mean, that might change a lot. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, you got to cut this. You got to cut this different. You, you got to. I, I really think that this movie was ruined in post. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, I, I could see Eddie Murphy going through this whole thing, thinking like, 
I'm not doing much different than you know Beverly Hills Cop here. This should work in the same way that movie worked, and yet. Well, Beverly Hills Cop is is I I stand by it holds up. I think it's I think it's fantastic. It's a movie that I've liked more and more the more I've seen it, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the all the things we talked about needing this one needs right. But there's good editing. There's a good sense of 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 understanding. Like it's a good sense of self awareness. Eddie Murphy gets to live in like they created a universe for his character to live in. And it made and everything made sense, and his character being able to do whatever he wanted makes sense. And who knows what was on the cutting room floor of jokes and whatnot. This movie, you are you're being asked to be patient for the next joke, and and the no matter what it seems like, the joke never justifies the wait because mm-hmm. because That's it right. is not well paced. So you're not really scared you're not really because again like the the dream sequence that he has where he gets the scar you know to prove that it was more than a dream like Mm -hmm. he it's that's played for laughs but it's not funny no and and that's the problem is that the so you see a scene that's played for laughs but it's also supposed to turn around and be played for like kind of foreboding and it does neither so it becomes just it's just weird I mean, and that's, I think the best way to describe this movie is it's weird. And it, and because it doesn't know what it is, because if it was, because of the, the clearly slapsticky stuff that's happening in that dream sequence, it's hard to take Sardo as a really menacing villain. And it's like, okay, well, you know, Charles Dance even says, we'll try to play him more as like a comic villain. It's like, but he doesn't, he doesn't really, he plays him pretty straight. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, this movie has a lot of good ingredients, and for some reason, it just it's overcooked or undercooked or something. So it it it's it's like it's it's feels like it's four different drafts of a movie, and they just put them all together. Was there one trope, cliche, or device that you enjoyed in this movie? I, uh, I well, I do. I, I I think, and this is why I think that it's worth um, maybe a, a revisit. You know, like a remake is. I think the the skeptical, like the humorous, skeptical, real world guy in entering into the supernatural, should work. I, I think, yeah. and I, I because he's he <laughs> he walks into all these things and he's recognizing magic is happening, whether he whether he chooses to believe it or not, and he continually just is underwhelmed by it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think also seems weird. It's like you're poo-pooing it and as it's happening, dude disappeared while you were holding him. That should count for something. <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, you're going into places and, and there's like bottomless pits and you're like, oh, that's, I'll be careful. <laughs> you know? Like, well, like ha- have a, a little respect for the majesty of magic. So... I'm a sucker for a magic dagger. <laughs> like I like I like that. I, I like that. There's a you know the, you have to go on a quest to get a magic sword yeah. or uh, you got you know there's something about this this ancient knife that you need. You know you're not gonna be able to succeed unless you get this thing. It's gonna be really hard to get. Uh, no one's gotten it before. Now you got it. Uh, I like that. I, I mean, I, I like stories that have that. Especially because all you have to do with it is just just give it a good old pound into the demon's chest and it'll explode. 
like I like riddles. I like riddles in in movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's again. This is. I mean, you know, we talked about this when I first started watching uh, doing the Game of Thrones rewatch on our sister cousin. I don't know what podcast that is at this point. Just an uncle. Just an uncle. Yeah, the, the yeah. fun uncle. Um, is I I was not really big on fantasy films, and I might blame it all on, on Golden Child. It's an interesting. I you know the funny thing is I wasn't even thinking that this was a fantasy film. I, I wasn't sure. I felt like you could if you were to, like you said if you were to mess with the music, mess with the score. Uh, this could be a horror. You you could make this into a horror movie. Sure. If you wanted to, you could you could also make it into a comedy. I think it is action adventure, but with some clear fantasy elements. But I do want to ask you about the dragon in this mm-hmm. film. <laughs> I remember being pretty scandalized by the reveal that <laughs> that the woman's half dragon, right, and how she got there. <laughs> it's 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 yeah it's it's not great. No. <laughs> It's not great. It's, but the the the, the reveal is kind of funny. <laughs> she she's half dragon, but it's it's sort of like a centaur, right? You know, sort of like only human from the, you know the chest up. Well, does she have a rattle tail? Is she is she's more like a a snake, a, a snake than it anything. feels like the the effects guy got he got the wrong memo. And it was too late. Like they put the effect in later, and they're like, and they get later, they're like, bro, that's a, she's like half snake, man. <laughs> she's supposed to be half dragon. He's like, well, I'm not he... redoing it. That took me like a day. And then they're like, well, can we change the dialogue? And they're like, no, Eddie Murphy left. He, he's gone. <laughs> it could be that he'd never seen a dragon. Yeah, it just. This guy was like a dragon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see those in the garden sometimes. They uh, slither around. They're dragons. <laughs> okay, well, you could save money if you get rid of the, the, the kind of the middle portion. So the top portion is going to be just the head of a human. <laughs> the bottom is going to be the dragon's tail. Right, right. right. But we're going to put a ra- – how do we know it's a tail? Put a rattle uh, on the end. <laughs> it's a rattle well, dragon. Well, now she kind of looks like a rattlesnake. <laughs> Look at all the money we saved. Was she, did she have feet or is she just sort of floating there? She's just floating, and she's just like she's and she's ah, she's like, and she's like, oh, she kind of sticks out her tongue a little yeah, bit. She's, to she's the like, side. Look, look, look away. <laughs> it's like, well, I can't. What's your life like? I mean, <laughs> I want to know more. She's been, dude. She's been around for like three hundred years. Yeah, she's she's over it. She's just she's like, look, I'm gonna somewhere. be down here. Just give me my smokes. Give me my smokes and the pork fried rice. That's all I want. That's all anybody in this film wants. <laughs> Steve, is this movie better, worse, or on par with a Ron Howard film? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think we'd give Ron Howard some credit on this one. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely this is definitely minus Howard. It's it's, but it's hard to. It's like almost like I think because the movie is so strange. I'm going to say it's a Ron Howard minus J. Minus J, yeah. yeah I was I was gonna say like uh, Howard minus six or something like yeah. that. But here's the thing about Howard. I, I want to just just take a moment to praise Howard. I feel like what Ron Howard does is he builds, uh, not always, but he will build the story 
around the actor that's on board, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like if he had ever sort of teamed up with Eddie Murphy, it would absolutely feel like an Eddie Murphy joint. Right. And I think it, for a movie that's all Eddie Murphy all of the time, this just doesn't feel like an Eddie Murphy joint. Right. So just a little credit to Howard. I feel like if he was working with Eddie Murphy, I feel like he would have showcased Eddie Murphy better. Yeah, I... Uh... In a sense, yes, I read that Eddie Murphy was like, like said it was like the best script he'd ever read. And granted, I mean, he's this is '86; he hadn't seen a bunch, uh, or who knows, right? But he said he was really excited best, to do this is it. The best script I've ever read. I've read two. Yeah, yeah. So my son popped in for the last five minutes of this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he got uh, in his mind. This movie is basically half claymation, right? Sure. <laughs> And so he's watching the movie. The movie, you know, so far we've seen demons. We've seen, you know, this is a very over-the-top movie. But the thing that gets my son is that the golden child wants to bring the girl back to life. But in order to do it, he touches her toe. Yeah. 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 And then he says, ew, why the toe? <laughs> what do you mean, why the toe? What, what's the problem Why with not the toe? The toe? I don't know. It just feels weird that he touched her toe. <laughs> he tickles her a lot. And then, of course, there was a problem with him kissing the girl. She, this this woman has been dead all day. <laughs> are you going to kiss her on the mouth? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> She's been dead all day long. <laughs> Maybe a kiss on the cheek to start with. Do kiss that toe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the kid had it right. He's like, ah, dad touched the toe. She's been dead all day. <laughs> all right. So uh, uh, what are we going to do next here? Do we know? No. Um, so we've got our options are the reanimator. That's one that you have not seen. That's right. Uh, Zodiac. And then... Um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which is coming to Disney Plus in a couple of weeks. So, um, okay, so not definitely. Not... Oh, an American Werewolf in London. Oh, American. Let's do that. Okay, I've never seen it, so I'm excited. I'm excited. So, Steve, I thought I would solicit feedback for the new Steve and Anthony joint Double Dragon. Mm, yes. Our seven fans have spoken, and it's time for us to create another platform. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. And uh, so Double Dragon, as you might have guessed, is dragon adjacent. So we will be covering all kinds of stuff, including Pete's Dragon, <laughs> yeah. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Oh, please. Yes, sir. And House of the Dragon on HBO. Mostly just House of the Dragon, but, I mean, what the heck? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, we're for sure going to cover The Last Dragon. Uh, in fact, we might actually do another podcast, which is just The Last Dragon. <laughs> Call that one The never the Never-Ending Dragon. A lot of karate-themed dragon shows. What was the, uh, what was the dragon one with McConaughey? Uh, uh, Reign it, of Fire? The, Reign of Fire, yeah, yeah. Never saw, never saw Reign of Fire. Although, I, yeah, I just I have that that image of McConaughey with like an axe 
flying through the air in slow motion. Like that's just permanently just branded into my brain. Yeah. Odd how some movie trailers are just indelibly cemented where the movie itself might be a little bit uh, vague. Right. Right. And it's funny because like I have seen that movie. And in fact, I tried to watch it a second time, but I was just like, you know, there will probably be no no sequence in this film that's as good as that image. <laughs> so why don't I just watch that a bunch? And I did. Uh, so anyway, here's what we're going to do with Double Dragon. Uh, it'll be Steve and I covering Double Dragon. Uh, sorry, it'll be Steve and I. <laughs> <laughs> just a video game. Uh, we're going to see us on Twitch. Uh, we're going to be playing uh, NES original Double Dragon. Um, I'll be blue. Anthony will be red. <laughs> Uh, I guess I am in a red state now. That's true, yeah. So, yeah, it will be us covering House of the Dragon. But from time to time, I might have uh, one of your favorite professor of medieval studies on to answer specific questions about the medieval world. And so if you would help us out, I'd really appreciate it. Send any questions that you might have about life in the medieval world or politics or anything that you think that might be House of the Dragon adjacent. And go ahead and send those to cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. Or I suppose you could send those to book at baldmove.com. Either way, that would help us out. Um, what about you, Steve? Do you, do you have any questions, burning questions that you might want to ask a medievalist? I'm sure I do, and I'm sure it has very little to do with their profession. Well, I did get some interesting codpiece information recently. Uh, oh, in a in a recent Bukulu episode, uh, found out it's not not just for looks. They, you know, these things actually were functional. It's for taste. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Yeah, yeah, you get them. They they, they come flavored. <laughs> so the same question... the same, com- the same company that makes the scented uh, markers. Mm. Um, so question number one. Were cod pieces ever flavored? Oh, I see. I had to jump straight to what's your favorite flavor of cod piece. I don't. I don't want. I don't need a lot of backstory. I want. I want to see application of this knowledge. <laughs> right. I'm not saying you eat the cod piece. You don't eat the cod piece. Let's be clear before we start getting uh, hate mm-hmm. mail, which is fine too. Mm-hmm. Hate mail is fine. We'll read it. Um, it's. Uh, it's. You would use the cod piece would also function as as a cup. Like to drink out of, like so you could just put plain water in oh. it, but it would take on the flavor of the codpiece. So it it would sort of give like it was like the uh, a Lacroix of the time. <laughs> so are you saying Lacroix takes on the flavor of the can that it's in? Well, if you look at look, La- well, no, it's, it's flavored, right? So like Lacroix, and if you translate it, it is the crotch. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff. That you'll get on our new podcast, Double Dragon. <laughs> and this is why Anthony will pre-record his interviews with medievalists and then go to our segment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, any questions uh, to cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com or book at baldmove.com. Any questions that for a professional medievalist that you would love to have answered? Otherwise, I'll have to ask the questions, and we've already had a glimpse of what that might look like. (laughs) This is on you, people. 
<laughs> Any questions about LaCroix, you can send those to at OzFest. <laughs> that's, that's Steve's Instagram handle. Contact me directly for all your sparkling water queries. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs> <laughs>